Hi, this is Nick Campbell. And I'm Andrea Passanel. And you're listening to In, In and, and Out, Out of Frame. Frame. Thanks for joining us. Um, this is our first podcast in this new series that we're doing. Nick and I watch a lot of movies together. Mm-hmm. And so we came across a book. There's there's a microwave cookbook from the 1970s that is sort of responsible for us finally getting together and starting this podcast. Yeah, we had the idea of doing kind of a riff on the dinner and a movie uh, shows like they used to do on TBS. So this would be more like dinner and a podcast. Um, we take recipes from the microwave oven cookbook. We've never tried any of these recipes. I want to go ahead and state that. So we feel fairly sure that some will be hits, some will be total misses. We but are our own guinea pigs. Yes, but we are going to try to pair them up with whatever film topic we're talking about. Um, and But this series, it's more about just discussing film reviews or that sort of thing. Like We really are, like the name says, in and out of frame, interested in talking about various components of the filmmaking process. Mm -hmm. And that could be the cinematography, soundtrack, acting. Set design, costume design, just anything that makes the film that you're watching, you know, all of those little pieces that make up the film and that without those pieces, you wouldn't end up with a final product that you end up watching. So that's kind of our idea here. And um, since it's Halloween, we decided it would only be appropriate to sort of focus this podcast around uh, John Carpenter and the Halloween series. Yeah, specifically we're going to talk about uh, three movies. We're going to talk about the original 1978 Halloween, directed by John Carpenter. We're going to do the 1981 sequel to the film, Halloween 2, uh, directed by Rick Rosenthal. And we're going to do the new Halloween 2018 by David Gordon Green. Uh, because it was just released, but yep. more or less for the 40th anniversary of exactly. the series. Yeah, so we're going to dive into those in a second. But first, we're going to take a break uh, to try our first recipe from the microwave cookbook. And we're renaming this recipe in honor of the Halloween series. This is going to be the Michael Myers pumpkin pie in a mug. So uh, we'll be back in a moment to dive into those Halloween movies and our pumpkin pie. So stay tuned. Okay, so we're back from making our uh, Michael Myers pumpkin pie in a mug. And uh, Andrea, we're, what do you what do you think? It's really weird. Um, so when we put it in the microwave, it puffed up in this. It's kind of like it started turning over on itself, like it was going to become upside down. It was going to become like a pumpkin pie ball. Yeah. And it's really not like pumpkin pie, honestly. No, it's really like pumpkin cake, mm -hmm. but kind of like a sponge cake. Yeah, a very gingery, it's spicy. I think there's definitely a good amount of spice in there. Um, but it tastes, like I was telling Andrea, it tastes a little bit like um, the Eggos French Toast Squares that they make. Yeah. It's very, it's very, yeah, it's like it's thick, it's very bready. It's, 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 it's dense. For it's sure. real dense. Um, it is the color, and I feel like if I'm thinking about 1970s food, I feel like this is it. I it's, think it translates yeah. pretty clearly. I don't know if this is something I'm going to make a lot or even ever again. I think it's something that you would tell someone about. And and they would be maybe confused, but you'd say, it's not bad. It's 
It's interesting. I feel like it's almost like astronaut food too. Like it's actually it is, yeah. a four course meal that has been distilled and condensed into this pumpkin ball. Which I think is kind of the whole thing about the microwave meals is that yeah. it's, that's the space age kind of like quick. You're just throwing some radiation on it and making what seems like it should be something you take hours to prepare in an oven with this whole preparation. And you do it in minutes. This we actually cooked it for two and a half minutes, I mm, think. The recipe is... originally said one minute and 15 seconds, but that, uh, it was still goopy. We've still got a, we've got a smaller microwave too, so maybe it's, maybe we needed a little more time. But, um, I would say it's not a bad Halloween if you're in a pinch and you only have two and a half minutes to throw a bunch of ingredients into a mug to watch a movie it's probably going to take the length of one of the movies to actually finish eating it. Um, mm -hmm, yeah. I mean, I'm going to do it, but wow. Yeah, so... Let's talk about the movies. Let's discuss. Okay, so again, let's start with Halloween, the original, um, and why it is so interesting. Uh, I think it's, in a larger sense, interesting because it's, it is the, it's not the first slasher movie, really, but it is the blueprint for everything, almost everything after it. Yeah, I mean, it really did set the tone for so many of the slasher horror films that we've watched since then. Um, of course, we mentioned earlier, but this is the 40th anniversary, mm -hmm. which ties into the new sequel we'll get into later. It's really funny because we are recording this podcast to the date of when the film was released, which was October 25th, 1978. Yeah, and it's an interesting movie, I think, a lot of for a lot of reasons, but... A lot of it has to do with the fact that it really shouldn't be that big of a movie. Um, it was recorded over a very short period of time with a very low budget, I think around $300,000, which producer Mustafa Akkad said that he was working on a movie at the time that cost that every day. So he almost greenlit the film because of the fact that it was so low budget and it was so quick to make. And it's such a simple plot because, I mean, it's more or less about an escaped mental patient. Um, there's no... There's no reason behind it. There's no, uh, the movie's, I was, thinking about, I was thinking about this earlier, it's an entirely functional film because it doesn't have, there's no message to it. The entire point of it is to scare you and a lot of it has to do with how slasher movies have developed. You know, people, especially in the 70s, they wanted to do more and more um, graphic effects and effects became a huge thing and especially for John Carpenter as a director, I mean, there were other movies that he's made that, that were really heavy on gore and violence. And this one, I think in total only three people, um, or three people are killed. That's debatable in the entire sure. course of the film, but specifically for the story that takes place in Haddonfield after he escapes, it's a very um, it's a very simple movie, and a lot of it has to do with the just the uh, the location of it. Um, it's the cinematography. It's a lot of it kind of well going. Yeah, with the, like the first person point of view. That was kind of a I think a new not new. I mean because you you see people like. Um, uh, well, they use it in a lot of Italian horror right, movies. Right, exactly. Um, so that was, I guess for the American audience, maybe that was a sort of a newer approach. The story came about, so Deborah Hill, who wrote the screenplay with mm -hmm. John Carpenter, um, I think that the concept was originally called the babysitter murders because, mm -hmm. I mean, I think a lot of that is like just as a girl that grew up babysitting and it's like, it feels kind of safe because it's your neighborhood. I think that's what makes the film so scary is it's like, a small town where everybody knows each other and it's like you know it's it's Halloween and it's festive and fun 
and yeah, know, this movie ruined Halloween. <laughs> totally, and it's just like it really plays on that psychological thing that I think we have in all of us around that time period. I mean, um, when we were watching Halloween two, even mm-hmm. um, there's the scene with the kid who's going into the emergency room because the razor blade oh, that was God. in the That's candy. Scary. That I think that that one <clears throat> scene. Uh, for a long time, kind of. I mean, I like the movie now. I really enjoyed us watching this yeah. movie, but that that's one little scene, which is a very small. Like, it doesn't really mean anything in the larger scheme of the film. But that movie, that scene ruined that movie for a long time for me because I thought this movie's so violent and it's mean. Yeah. So it played on a lot of real fears that, as a kid, you sort of had. I mean, I, I was talking to Nick, and I was saying, like, yeah, I remember, like, my mom looking through our candy mm-hmm. and maybe because she saw this film you know maybe because that was like oh my gosh there might be razor blades in the candy yeah you thought getting that toothbrushes instead thing. of candy was bad right <laughs> yeah so i mean kind of going back to the original film i think that was a great concept and it was so simple and i think that's why it worked so well is it something that we could all relate to this was suburban america a place we were all familiar with and to be able to spin that and make it scary was really effective Mm -hmm. and a lot of it too is just um i guess kind of if we want to relate it back to the title of the podcast um a lot of within the film what's scary about michael myers is that of course like he is an identifiable um character now he's the mask he's the jumpsuit he's just kind of standing there quiet he you don't relate to him at all because he has that white face um and john carpenter i guess part of it is he didn't want people to um to relate to this character at all um but one of the things is that michael myers is kind of in and out of frame. A lot of the time what they do is you see characters kind of floating around in the background, like it focuses on the people in the foreground of the film. Mm-hmm. You see what they're doing, but then in the background you'll just see, and this is this is something that's used in every horror movie. It Like any of the paranormal activity, like ghost movies now yeah. use this. It's basically a character doing something innocuous, like talking on the phone to their friend or making something, and it's like they'll move, and just when they move a little bit, you'll see something in the background. It's almost not completely identifiable what it is. It takes you a second, but then you realize it, and then the character moves back, and they do it again, and it's, and he's gone. Right. And so a lot of it, like there's a famous, I think one of the most famous shots from the film, when uh, when Tommy, the boy that Laurie Schroeder is babysitting, looks out the window, and he's been talking about the boogeyman, and he sees across the street, just in the yard, uh, he sees just a, a figure standing there, and it's kind of half in and out of focus there like he's yeah. it's, it's partly on his white face partly not and then it just you know he just kind of disappears because he just doesn't you always know he's there but he's not always like the and the thing with the first person camera too is that um in the opening part of the film you just see the this camera floating around and it, it it's moving like a human being because it's looking through windows and it's kind of focusing on different little things but most of the time like you only get it, it's like oh you see a hand reach in which funny enough is Deborah's right. hand in that one scene the camera changes and it's a frontal shot and it's you see it's this little kid and it's and then that's the sets up the rest of the movie that that you're gonna look through his eyes most of the time there's really a huge nod to hitchcock in a lot of areas oh for sure and um a couple of things for instance i mean this was a breakout role for jamie lee curtis um she was a complete unknown at the time other than the fact that she's the daughter of janet lee who of course is stars in Psycho. And then the other main character, Dr. Loomis, Dr. Sam Loomis, is actually the name of um, Janet Lee's boyfriend mm-hmm. in Psycho. So I love that 
John Carpenter, they, they threw in those little sort of tips of the hat to mm-hmm. Hitchcock in that. Um, I believe even the knife that was used was very kind similar of similar to Bates. the... Yeah, absolutely. So those were really fun little pop culture moments yeah, kind of it, thrown in. and It's something that, again, like a lot of horror movies do now. You'll have... The, they'll take entire... Uh, the movie Night of the Creeps, of course, is a is a comedy, but there every there's like uh, there's nods to David Cronenberg, there's and Jason Voorhees, like they're just thrown about like the campus buildings on there, and that's and that right. kind of thing was just something that you know th- there's not even you don't even really think about it in this one because they just kind of it's very it's a very natural film, um, so it doesn't really like make kind of like a, it doesn't wink at you at all. Yeah. Um, but it, it does that where it um <clears throat> it's very much in and of itself a reference to the past. Totally. And I, I, I appreciate that as a person that watches a lot of films. It's nice to connect those dots and, and be able to, you know, see those influences. And you can relate to the to the filmmakers in that way too, because Absolutely. then it's like I love those movies. I love those directors. And that's and it's great to see that, that you're kind of on the same wavelength with people that are making art that you love. John Carpenter, of course, did the the music. That's another thing, kind of going back to Nick's point about this film being such a sort of relatively low budget film. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody wore a lot of hats in this film. So, like, people did a lot of jobs. Like, um, Tommy Lee Wallace, he was the production designer. He was the art director, the location scout, the editor. You know, John Carpenter directed, wrote the screenplay. Wrote the music. Wrote the music. Everybody was doing a lot to make it kind of come together. Mm. And uh, I always think it's really cool when you see that sort of production and it works. Well, that's what makes it so endearing too, is just that it kind of gives, if you're an aspiring filmmaker, it's all these people that are under pressure to make this movie that just, that is again, a functional, it's supposed to scary. It's supposed to, to make money. It's just supposed to get popped out real quick, but it, it, people have put so much care and effort into it because of that pressure yeah. to make it work that it's, it's just become a pop culture phenomenon. Totally. And I mean, kind of going to that point. So the, the Michael Myers, mask that we all know now so when they were trying to figure out the mask that they were going to use for Mm -hmm. michael myers um tommy lee wallace uh he actually found um it was a really bad uh captain kirk mask Mm -hmm. i think it was a a dollar yeah and it was they spray painted the mask white and i think he kind of made the eye holes bigger to make it it was not apparently a very good captain kirk to start with but I love the fact that it's like, you know, essentially William Shatner was the basis for Michael Myers. One of, yeah. One of the scariest characters in history is based on the weird face of <laughs> William Shatner. Yes. I'm sorry, William Shatner. It really, it's it's an interesting film on a lot of levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we watched, we actually just rewatched mm-hmm. Halloween 2. It's an interesting movie because plot-wise, it picks up immediately after the original Halloween. They actually somewhat reshoot and add parts to the finale of Halloween where Michael Myers gets shot and falls out a window and then disappears. That was originally not supposed to be a sequel because mm-hmm. they didn't really do that a whole lot um, at the time. This is, I guess, this was made in 81. 81, yeah. Um, and Rick Rosenthal, the editor of the film, who was actually the second choice to direct it after Tommy Lee Wallace turned it down, they didn't really want to make another Halloween, but... There was demand for it, and especially after Halloween took off and became, it was ripped off by uh, Friday the 13th. It is a direct ripoff, they they will admit it. Um, But they made this movie three years later, but it picks up immediately after. Jamie Lee Curtis is becoming a little bit bigger of a star at this point because of Halloween. 
because of the demand, because of the pressure of the other slasher movies becoming more violent, people wanting to see more, more and crazier kills, um, they made this movie that is, it is very much when it's not killing people, it feels exactly like a Halloween movie. And I think it's one of the better sequels in the Halloween series. But it's also, it's, it's a different animal because they want, they want to satisfy the audience's bloodlust a little bit. Yeah, the body count is higher. The body count is sure. about three times higher mm -hmm. in this film. But to get off the topic of murder and go back to the effectiveness of Halloween 2, it is, I think, effective, again, partly because of the location of the film. The hospital in the film, because basically this part is that Laurie Strode has been moved to a hospital, Haddonfield is becoming aware that Michael Myers has escaped and is murdering people, um, and so Laurie is transported to a hospital that is basically run on a skeleton crew of about six or seven people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the movie is spent taking shots of the hell, of the halls of the hospital deserted and you know shrouded in and partially in darkness um and it's really spooky because it's this giant building and there's this one character who's just kind of popping in and out like he's there's this, a shot where he is covered by a drape in a hospital room like just he's lit from the back from outside and you can kind of tell he's there, and he's, and that's, I think, when the movie is most effective. It's got two great things. The first part is, I think, it brought in this whole mass hysteria thing where you're seeing him um, kind of stalk between houses, um, and you see him kind of going through alleyways and popping in and out from behind buildings. And it's really cool um, because you know, it kind of gives him that, um, that menacing kind of presence because he just navigates his way to the hospital, almost right. kind of like by sonar or something. Well, and I think, too... Um... It, it's really, again, I think what's really smart about this, the sequel, it's really a lot of playing on childhood fears. Mm -hmm. So to your point about the hospital being this huge building that's, you know, a lot of spaces where someone could be hiding, that to me reminded me of kind of, you know, that feeling we all have of being a kid mm -hmm. and just thinking that something's lurking. And then also that, you know, that whole like boogeyman, um, you know, that's that's a thing that's referenced in the film. You know, that's Tommy's scared of the boogeyman. And, and that's what Laurie kind of comes to believe at the end of the first one because she exactly. said, was that the boogeyman? Yeah. And so he's just what it, what <clears throat> you're afraid of. Right, because it's it's super unsettling. I mean, if you're in a in a large space, if you've ever and especially been in a, a hospital, an office building, but especially a hospital, and there's all these rooms where typically it's a place of, of a lot of activity and things going on, and then there's just no one. Like that's super spooky. Mm -hmm. So, but I think the other thing that the that the movie introduces and why it's an interesting sequel is because it tries to expand on the character of Michael Myers a little bit. Um, you can argue how successful that was, but it gives you little hints throughout the movie through Laurie's dreams, Dr. Loomis finding the places that Michael has been on his way to find uh, Laurie, and then in the end of the movie, they reveal basically that Michael is actually Laurie's brother. It's a little bit, like, they kind of just throw things out there, and it's kind of introduced, like, for real last minute in the film, um, but it's supposed to give a little bit of motivation to why... Uh, Michael Myers kills. But the three things about the series as a whole that I think are important are Laurie Strode, Dr. Loomis, and Michael Myers, at least in terms of the story itself. Um, and so the new movie, Halloween 2018, what it does is it wipes out the entire rest of the series. There's no Halloween 2 up through Resurrection. And I think it's a fun and interesting sequel because in this one, Laurie Strode is not Michael Myers' sister. Uh, Dr. Loomis has been dead for years. And it's, it's interesting because even though it wipes out the rest of the series, it in and of itself is kind of fan service and referencing visually everything else about the series. I think the 
the one of the coolest things about it really is just that is John Carpenter himself is is he's not an integral part of the visual film, but he made a new score for the film. Yeah. And and that's because his John Carpenter let's just talk about John Carpenter now. Absolutely. Because John Carpenter is now basically a musician. He's always been a musician. He's always but... been a musician. And I think we referenced earlier um when he did the original score for the first Halloween uh, it's actually credited at the end as the Bowling Green Philharmonic. I still really enjoy that name. I love that. And that is that is John Carpenter. He just thought um, he's from Bowling Green, Kentucky. He did have some friends also from Kentucky that I think helped with the making of the music. So it was kind of a fun way to credit themselves. You know, the Halloween theme song that we know so well. Something new. I think it's a very common thing for a couple of notes to be the way that you show that you're scared. For example, Jaws. Jaws is a great mm -hmm. reference point for that, where you know with just that donut, donut, danger is coming. Mm -hmm. uh, I also think like Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, the p creepy piano that carries through a lot of that movie. And that's another thing. John Carpenter, there, it's one of the examples of, of using that piece that kind of repeats itself throughout the film. Mm -hmm. It's extremely minimal. Yeah, and, I mean, he uses it again. Well, not he uses it. Ennio Morricone uses it in John Carpenter's The Thing, where it's just, dum, dum. There's no, it's not even that dynamic, but it's just, it's kind of, it's something's lurking there. Yeah, it, it becomes, you know, it's really the entrance music for Michael Myers. And that's the thing about the original Halloween, too, is that it's it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't flood the film with, with music it doesn't kind of try and tell you the entire time that you're supposed to be scared like right. and honestly when the music comes in a lot of the time it's on shots of of quaint city streets you're supposed to feel like he's there right i mean it is and i think it's that juxtaposition of the not scary scenario with the scary music that is it creates the unsettling um, effect. Well, yeah, and that's part of the thing. One of the little anecdotes about the original Halloween is that they had completed a portion of the film, and John Carpenter showed it to the producer, and it didn't have any music at the time. So when he watched it, he's like, "This isn't what is it? This isn't scary at all. Like no one's gonna be frightened by this." And so you know, John Carpenter was already a musician, and so he had done the music uh, for his movie Assault on Precinct Thirteen before this, and so he came in and and you know and wrote a little wrote a little ditty. So this music that was was born out of necessity and, and, you know, John Carpenter was tasked with it because it was like, I'm the guy that can pull this off on this budget. I mean, he's now become as much known as a composer as he is a director. Outside of that, he also composes his own music, which is very much in the style of his, of his soundtrack work, and he tours the world on it. And that's kind of the thing that um, he didn't really want to be involved, like as the creator of Halloween 2018. Uh, that was handed off to the director and the writers. Um, but they wanted him to be involved. And the thing that he actually contributed to it, um, we may have mentioned this before, was that he he recomposed the score in a way, like a lot with a lot of the modern instrumentation that he's brought in over the years, including synths and more of kind of like the crunchy metal guitars and everything. Yeah, and I feel like that's kind of what would make this work because I can't imagine, honestly, tying up that series and not having at least the musical component be John Carpenter. And if you haven't got a chance to check out the music of John Carpenter, there are a couple of really great collections through uh, Sacred Bones Records. There's the Lost Themes 1 and 2. Mm -hmm. There's his anthology series, which is the re-recorded versions of 
his most famous movie themes. And then, of course, there's the... Halloween 2018 soundtrack. Exactly. So all of those are worth checking out. Great collections of the musical work of John Carpenter. And on the note of Halloween 2018, a fun fact about it is that the director, David Gordon Green, was not... uh, He was going to be working on a different movie... A different horror remake oh, sequel. I know where you're going with um, this. And that is the new Suspiria. Yes, the classic from 1977, Italian Giallo by director Dario Argento. This is one of my favorite films of all time. It is so amazingly beautiful and just crazy over the top. We actually got to see the 4K restored version of it at the uh, at the Alabama theater during Sidewalk. Yes, and this theater is a very opulent deco theater it it completely fits with the movie mm-hmm. you feel like you're in the film just seeing there i mean i've watched this movie countless times again and again but that was the first time i'd had a chance to see a proper theatrical screening of it and it was the perfect theater for that film um but we are super excited about the new Suspiria by director uh, Luca Guadagnino. Mm-hmm. And, um, We're actually going to make it the subject of, of the next podcast. Yes, it is. We're going to talk about the old Suspiria, new Suspiria, soundtracks for both. From Goblin and the new one from Tom York. Tom York as well. And um, just lots of cool, interesting stuff. So Because there's so much to dig into with that one. There is. There's a lot. I mean, I, I was going to say... We could do a whole podcast about it. Well, guess what? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, um, that about wraps it for this one. But for more info about this podcast or extra content, be sure to go to our website, inandoutofframe.com. I'm Andrea. I'm Nick. And from In and Out of Frame, Happy Happy Halloween. Halloween.